Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your counselor. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your counselor in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. It's convenient. It's professional and it's affordable. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. And again, that's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com forward slash Billy. This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Einstein. James Dean. Now we're talking. Katie, there's a, there's a light in your eyes. Hello again, and welcome to episode 43 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's Rock'em Sock'em action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. And I am Tom Fordyce. Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with James Dean. Katie, isn't it nice to have an episode where we have heard the name and then haven't looked at each other blankly? Where we already know a little bit of stuff about the thing we're talking about. Yeah, there's a lack of glaze on our eyeballs (laughs) where we're like right in there with opinions all ready to go. Um, Very handsome man, James Dean, number one. Mm. Um, What I found myself wondering as we prepare for this episode is how good an actor he was. So you knew that you were sexually attracted to him. His like, hair is amazing. His hair, or at least to his hair. Uh, and uh, yes, he is an amazing actor. And um, again, a little bit like Brando, that kind of thing where he's forging a new path. He's, you know, performing against these wooden mannequin actors from an earlier tradition. And he's just like Mr. Natural. Yeah, there's an amazing clip, isn't there, when he's acting with Ronald Reagan, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. Yeah. And it is like watching someone acting against the wooden door. Yeah, that's it. Ronnie was not the finest actor of his generation. Maybe James Dean was. We shall find out more, Katie, speaking to our guest this week. Jake Lambert is a comedian. He has his own podcast guest list. Most importantly for us, Katie, he is a huge fan of James Dean. And Katie, he has come in a wind cheater. It's not red, it's black. Jake Lambert, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. 
<laughs> so it's very, very hard with, with James Dean because we have so many preconceptions and there is so much we can talk about. We can talk about what made him. We can talk about what he did in that very brief career when he only made three films. But let's connect it to you. What was it about James Dean that first made him jump out for you? I was at university not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I was studying film and I watched this film and I saw this guy and then suddenly just something, I guess it was because of Rebel Without a Cause, where that's basically what you feel like you are at university. I mean, I wasn't, but you feel like he represents something that you're sort of striving to be. But at the time, the reason he was so relevant was because he was one of the first sort of, of the generation where people before him had had like wars to fight and suddenly he's like a young man who's sort of angry but basically has not much to sort of fight against which basically is why he is sort of personification of a rebel without a cause. Well yeah he's like the um, the emblematic of a teenager that he is like the first teenager in a way because mm. it's coming after the war eras and people don't they're not just automatically plugged into the military and um they have all of that angst that has no purpose or or no goal. And, of course, speaking as a lady, there's nothing more attractive than a young man in pain. Like, there's just something so (laughs) deep and poetic about it. So all of that inchoate uh, angst is catnip for the girls. Where should we start here then, Jake? Because you could start with those films. You could start with Rebel, you could talk about Giant and East of Eden, you can talk about his look and his legacy, but his childhood is not just picaresque, it's dark in so many places. Yeah, it is. It is dark. His mum, from what we know from his childhood, was his best friend. The dad was very distant, so when his mum died of cancer, James was sent back to Indiana from uh, California to live with his aunt and uncle. And why was that? I mean, that seems so ridiculously harsh. I mean, imagine being a little nine-year-old boy Mm. and uh, your mum goes and then dad just ships you off to the, what, the grandparents or something? There is footage of his aunt uh, after James has died and she is saying in a documentary, The James Dean Story, and she says, we've read reports that suggest that he was sort of disposed of and, and handed back to us. And she said, that's not the case. And she says, we knew that my brother couldn't take care of him. So we offered to have him and we were happy to have him. Okay. Which, again, is the thing of James Dean, as we learned throughout the episode. There were two sides to everything. And because he died so young, there's so many answers we don't really have. No. What we do have is then when he did move back, there is this relationship with a minister called Dr. James DeWeird. It's such an appropriate name because everything <laughs> you hear about this man, Katie, is very weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the most, well, not chilling detail, but the spookiest detail I've read about him, Jake, is this big shrapnel hole he's got in his chest. Yeah. So he's a single man, he's a minister, he lives with his mother, um, he likes taking groups of boys to the gym and uh, suggesting they swim naked, several red flags already. There's a point where he takes the young James Dean for a ride in his car, mm. lifts up his shirt to show this shrapnel wound that he has sustained in the Second World War, and in an almost sort of Christ-like way, <gasps> says, put your fist in my wound. Oh, my gosh. That is all many different flavors of wrong right there. The wound, the fist, the Christ, 
everything. I don't like it. But the thing, I mean, talking about the various conflicting nuances here, um, it seems that while the suggestion is that he was sexually abused by this Methodist minister, this man was also somewhat of a mentor to him and, and encouraged him. In I mean, James was theatrically inclined and was interested in performance and uh, bullfighting apparently was an interest of this minister and he kind of passed that on to James. So what was going on there? Throughout James Dean's life, those sort of four things, uh, so what do we have like the speed, the acting, uh, the the bullfighting, sorry, three things, they're forever in his life. They're things that he's constantly involved with. So this guy clearly had a big effect on his life. Well, I guess there is four things because the fourth thing is also the the abuse and the relationship. Right. There's a couple of lines here, Katie, as well. So this maybe throws a little bit more light on this very strange, disturbing relationship. There is something that James Dean is supposed to have said to the minister, Dr. De Weird, when he was in his teens, which is, I'm evil, aren't I? Why else did my mum go away? And then the line from Dr. De Weird himself is... I taught Jim he was depraved and evil and had to seek salvation. Oh, my gosh. You know what's so eerie? I was just watching, rewatching East of Eden last night, mm. and his character Cal, who is so tortured and so desperate for his father's love and attention, uh, accepts his father's condemnation of him as being bad. And he keeps saying to his father, as you know, in East of Eden, I'm bad, aren't I? I'm just bad. And that whole idea that that's the reason why his mother's gone off in this case to run a brothel. Um, but um, it does seem that there's a certain amount of masochism, emotional masochism that runs throughout uh, his life, but contrasted with his incredible joyous artistic expression. He was drawn to uh, acting when he was young. He was interested in later on learning how to play the piano. He learned how to dance. Uh, He wrote in his diary when he was young that he was destined to become an artist. Uh, Later, we see photographs of him sculpting. And he made movies. He made animation. Uh, Jake, what do you think the source was of this intense um, artistic expression? This confidence, I mean, that's the thing that gets me. Well, first of all, well done for sort of saving this from quite a dark opening to the podcast. (laughs) 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 Sort of lightening the mood slightly. I think, from what I know of James Dean, one of his quotes is he says that he believes that uh, an actor should be an intellect, that they should be intellectual and they should know everything about everything. And from also what we know from when he was a child, there's a drawing of him uh, that he's drawn a truck. It says James Dean Industries with a sign pointing to Hollywood. Oh. So since he was very young, he always always knew he wanted to be an actor. Well, we must know that now, that that's what he wanted to be. Yeah. So I think he was, from a very young age, trying to be involved in everything that he could. I think if he learned about something new, he would then do all he could to to know everything about it or be as best as he could, which is why he was on the basketball team, on the baseball team. He set the local record for pole vault, um, but he's only five foot seven. So everything he did, he seemed to strive to be the best. And there was a this James DeWeird who, I think along with James Dean's uncle, helped him sort of get into sports wrestling. And James Dean's uncle got him his first motorbike. And then uh, in the James Dean story, they, uh, which is the documentary, they came out a few years after he, uh, after he died, 
the mechanic who sold the motorbike said we had a name for James Dean, which was One Speed Dean, and that was One Speed Wide Open. And he said he would just go so fast that it would be like people had to sort of feel like, how do we sort of tell this guy to slow down? Because we also, from what we know of James Dean, you can't tell him to slow down. Mm. That obsession with speed seems to have been there from the start as well, Jake, as you say. Mm. You hear these stories about him when he's 13 years old on a really cheap little motorbike, riding these S-Bends out in rural Indiana and sort of leaning his bike so low that he can just touch the branches of the trees on the inside of the road, setting speed records for certain dusty rural roads. Yeah, and again, like everything in his life, it felt like if he was introduced to it, it would stick, which is why when he was older, he started racing cars. I think he came first in uh, his first ever race, which was for novice drivers. The following day, he then entered the main race and came second. So it feels like everything he did, he continued to do until he was the best at it. So let's talk about how he then moves into acting because he, at a certain point, he goes back to California and Mm. is reunited with his dad. And uh, so he starts to pursue acting when he's at UCLA. So he's back with his dad briefly. He's 18. He moves in with his dad and his dad's new wife in Santa Monica and he starts studying law. Very quickly, he drops out of law, uh, moves to UCLA and starts to pursue acting. That's the last time we ever know of him and his dad interacting. Why does his dad reject him? I mean, that just seems so ridiculous when his whole young life, he's shown this ability for for acting. That's one of his talents. Yeah, I think the fact that his dad, we know, a very tight-lipped man. Right. And I also don't know if it's because it was too much... Um, memory from his mum. His mum was artistic and creative. It's almost like he was pushing everything away. James Dean would have obviously reminded him so much of his wife because probably a man who, as we all know, quite tight-lipped, quite cold, probably wasn't somebody who was willing to sort of deal with or open up about his emotions. Right, and he has a son who's incredibly expressive. Mm. I love this detail that uh, his first speaking part that he got uh, on a television show was as John the Beloved Disciple in something called Hill Number no. 1. It was an Easter TV special dramatizing the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, it led, because he was such a cute disciple, Tom, <laughs> it, it led to Convent Schoolgirls starting the very first James Dean fan club. Yes, the Immaculate Heart James Dean Appreciation Society. <laughs> 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 now, that's a club I want to be a part of. Um, so he was um, making strides, uh, you know, getting bit parts, or, or actually, that's a pretty good part to be John the Disciple. That's right up there. Number two to Jesus. But uh, he ends up moving to New York City because doesn't he get the word from uh, a mentor who says to him, if you want to make it as an actor, theater is the way to go? Is that the general idea? So. I think uh, you're referring to Rogers Brackets. When he then moves to L.A., he's working, um, tries to be an actor. He drops out of UCLA. Later, he's working as a car park attendant next to the CBS studio where he meets this guy, Rogers Brackett, who's a sort of works in advertising. He's a, like a, a radio producer. He's also the same as DeWitt, exactly 15 years older than James Dean. Ah. James Dean moves in with him. There's two bedrooms. We don't know exactly the sleeping arrangement. There is reports of one of James Dean's friends coming over and saying that he thinks that this guy might be homosexual. And James Dean says, who, like, who cares if he is? Rogers Brackett then moves to Chicago. He gets a job in Chicago. 
There's reports that Rogers Brackett's mother found James Dean wailing in the bathroom, screaming about the fact that he was being abandoned again. Uh-huh. So he moves to Chicago with Roger Brackett, which doesn't really go well. James Dean doesn't like Chicago. So Roger Brackett tells him to go to New York uh-huh. and he'll help him and he will set up meetings and he'll get him uh, seen by the right people, which works. And he is in uh, a play called See the Jaguar, which I think opens and closes very quickly. He's also ruins things in his own way and for himself in that he gets a part in a play and he falls out with the producer. He is sleeping with the co-star. He falls out with the director of the show, of the show sorry, uh, to the point where James Dean hands in his notice on the opening night. But this is an actor in New York who needs money, who needs work, who wants work, who wants to act, and he's still willing to do things like that for... I guess just to sort of rub people up the wrong way. No, I think he had bigger fish to fry because didn't he get cast in East of Eden by Kazan? He did. So East of Eden, the author of East of Eden, John Steinbeck, apparently Ilya Kazan went to him and said, what do you think? And he said, he's just like a snotty-nosed, grubby young boy. Right. And Ilya Kazan said, yeah, he's cow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he is that. He's also exactly what we're looking for. And I think... And so John Steinbeck, just to back up, he he wrote the classic book, East of Eden. East of Eden, and, yes. And so there's Kazan going, like, I just want to check with you, the maestro, on the casting here. Mm. Um, and and I heard that um, Steinbeck had to kind of concede, like, well, yeah, you got a point. Can't really argue. I guess that is that is the character that I wrote. I mean, there is a lot of things about the character very similar to James Dean, uh, this boy sort of abandoned by his mom and a very sort of... Uh, closed off dad and there's a scene in it where Cal, James's character, is trying to give his dad a gift of money. But the way it plays out and what's left in the film is not what was supposed to happen. Oh, he was supposed to... I know, I know. I, Great. This, this one, because I watched the film last night and I ha, and that is such a powerful scene. So his mm. dad has kind of ruined himself with a bad business deal and then James as the um, the son who is like the, the red-headed stepchild figure, he ends up winning big on something. He makes a really good business decision and, and earns a lot of money and thinks this is going to... I'm going to buy my father's love if I give him this money. And... The, the scene was staged so that the dad rejects it and James Dean as the son just goes running out of the door. But instead, he shocked Raymond Massey, the actor, just by blubbering on him. And you're like throwing yeah. his arms around him and like, dad, and hugging him. And the actor was so shocked that he was just it was very realistic because he just was barking, you know, cow, cow, like, yeah, for God's sake, you know, pull yourself together. And it's one of the few times I've noticed where you see an uh, actor that's o- uh, acting opposite James Dean yeah. act as well as him yes. because he's in the moment too because yes. he doesn't know what's going to happen. Almost as though James Dean never knows quite what he's going to do. The actors he's acting with never quite know what he's going to do. But because he went with it, you get one of the most real raw scenes uh, he's ever filmed. So well said. And I mean, this gets into a thing I really wanted to talk about. And we should skip back to this um, early television thing that he did with Ronald <laughs> Reagan. Uh, this was so great. So it was part of this um, thing called the General Electric Theater. And they did these plays. It was just kind of like one camera, very woodenly following this action in this thing called the Dark, Dark Hours. And James Dean is one of uh, two young punks who... Uh, come up to the house of this doctor because one of them's been shot in some sort of, you know, some crime that's been committed. Yes? You're the doctor? Yes. 
And there's Ronald Reagan being like, you know, the mahogany mannequin (laughs) going, oh, well, I need to call the police. That's a bullet wound. Where'd you get that? (laughs) From a gun, man. (laughs) Where are you going? To the phone. And it is such a joy. It's almost just like a little, um, just a masterclass of all of James Dean's little tweaks and twerks and mumbling and mumbling and and also like he's this kind of beatnik guy he's a hepcat he's a hepcat (laughs) and he's got all this language that he's using and it is so shocking the contrast you saw it Tom didn't you yeah and it is the contrast between not just acting abilities but schools of acting isn't it yeah Ronnie is doing his oh shucks I'm just a you know good old boy I'm an upstanding, uh, you know, patriarchal figure. Exactly. And James Dean comes in and it's like a hurricane has blown through, as you say, this completely staid, very stagey set. It's like you can suddenly see the future of acting. Yeah. Coming in. Yeah. um, Against this against this old fashioned way of doing things. You kill him. You kill him. You kill him. Stop it. Sit down. I'm going to kill you. Both of you. You shouldn't have done that. Jake, where does all this come from? There's there's a lot of evocative stuff about James Dean when he's in New York and he's moved there with Rogers Brackett and he's trying to get these roles. And it also seems like he's trying to work out who he is. He's clearly obsessed with Marlon Brando. He has got this weird uh, 1950s actor obsession with bongos. They all love playing bongos. He's listening to a lot of jazz. Mm. Is that where his realistic style of acting comes from? I guess so. I, I know that there were stories that when he was in New York, he was very lonely. He was a loner and he would go out on his own and watch people and then just start mimicking them. There's uh, talk of him even going to the cinema and, and watching a uh, watching a film and then not really saying much with his friend as they leave and then suddenly James Dean just becomes the character they've seen on the screen and suddenly he just starts doing all his little mannerisms and yeah. looks and, 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 and quoting him. And he just sort of could become and mimic people so well. I don't know where exactly where this style of acting came from, apart from it feels like a lot of the people he was playing were so close to who he was anyway. Yeah. But when you're watching, I think the contrast of the juxtaposition is so big between him and Ronald Reagan. Oh, yes. Ronald Reagan is so out of his depth with yes. this new guy who's just yeah. doing... You can this... almost see the panic in Ronald's <laughs> face, <laughs> guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like he does go a little blank because, you know, that's exactly it, Jake, because yeah. it's like um, James is obviously improvising and that's another thing. You don't necessarily appreciate this in James Dean's three films that he made in his very short career, but in that that little uh, Dark Dark Hours play with Ronald Reagan, he's funny. Yes. He's funny. And so he he's doing these things where like the radio's on and this like crazy swing music is playing and his friend is bleeding out on the operating table and like on his last legs. And uh, the music's like, do, do, doodly, do. And James grabs his fr- friend's limp arm and starts jitterbugging. You pick up on it, man? Crazy. It's just so ludicrous and hilarious. And yeah, you can see, Tom, that Ron Reagan is just uh, like... <laughs> Well, I'm I'm just going to go into my next line. You better get into a hospital. In the script, I think well, that should keep well, things under control. And deliver it in a monotone. <laughs> in a co- in a confident monotone. But yeah, th- there's that line where uh, there's James Dean saying to Ronald Reagan, "Get that bullet out of my friend's arm." And then Ronald Reagan goes, "Well, I'm not a surgeon." And then he goes, "Fake it, Dad." <laughs> Katie, I don't know about you, but I need a little breather. Should we have some ads? 
Hello, it's me again. I'm just going to interrupt the history scene to tell you about this other podcast you could check out, because I'm on it. I'm cheating on fire. It's called Dot Com, and it's the documentary series about the people of the Internet. And it starts with Wikipedia. Yeah, sure, it's just a little website, but it's not. Who are these people? The faces behind the screen? The brains behind the words? A place where people can come together and talk about the things that are important to them. We've just found a way in the Wiki universe to do that. This is a hidden world, and it is fascinating. So if you're digging the fire, you will love this. I mean, how could Wikipedia not be corrupt at this point? Search for .com and subscribe now. How? So he gets to New York, Jake, and uh, he gets in with where all the the cool kids are, which is the, the method acting scene. Is yes. that right? Yes. Yeah. And he gets to go to the same school that Marlon Brando went to, mm. who we know he... The actor studio. The actor studio. Yeah. There are reports that they didn't meet until uh, Marlon Brando and James Dean didn't meet until uh, Marlon Brando came to the set of East of Eden, oh. at which point everyone said how much James Dean was idolizing this guy. Mm. There is, however, reports that six years earlier when James Dean was studying, that um, Marlon Brando turned up to do a speech at the actor's studio. He was in New York and he said, I want to go back and I want to do a talk. And Marlon Brando reported that when he was on stage, he could feel like his skin was burning. And he looked up to see this guy looking at him so intently like nobody had ever looked at him before. Ooh. And it was James Dean stood at the back of the room. There then begins uh, reports of a relationship that happened in New York that was very one-sided. Marlon Brando, of course, denied the whole thing. But there's a lot of their mutual friends who would say that they would see them together regularly and each time it looked more like James Dean was happier to be there than Marlon Brando. Oh, right. He <laughs> seems haunted a lot of the time to meet James Dean. This period, mm. Jake, when he's in New York, so he's been taken there by Rogers Brackett. Yep. Um, his first apartment is paid for by the pastor, Dr. DeWeird, so they mm. are the lingering traces of those earlier relationships. He doesn't sound like he sleeps much. He goes out all night, he drinks... Sounds obsessed with his mother still. Yeah, he has been quoted as saying that he thought that uh, sleep was a waste of time and if he slept he would miss something. You can see that in his face, I think. In that scene you've talked about Mm. there, Katie, when he is performing opposite the mannequin who would become uh, the President (laughs) of the United States of America. (laughs) You can see the bags under his eyes. You can see it on his face. To go back to what you said uh, before, Tom, about his relationship with his mother... And there's one of his relationships with uh, a girl called Arlene Sachs. And she said this of him. Once I told him I loved him, but he pretended he didn't hear. Then he said, you can't love me. and I don't think anyone can yet. He read me The Little Prince, his favourite book, which he said was about him, about a boy who came from a star and was too special for this world. And then the little boy died. Then I'd see his mind go away and I'd ask him what he was thinking about. And he'd say, I'm thinking of my mother. Oh, Katie, there's supposed to be something he, a little game he did with his mother before she died when he was nine years old, and they called it the wishing game. And I don't know how healthy this was for him, but apparently he would write down on a piece of paper whatever it was that he wanted to do the next day, and when he went to bed, he would put this piece of paper under the pillow. And then his mother would come into his bedroom when he was asleep, take out this piece of paper and try to make whatever he had written down on the piece of paper come true the next day. And they called it the wishing game. Is that a good thing for a boy to have from his mother? Yes, 
on one level it would seem to be because he's got a mother who loves him and cares about yeah. him so much. But then is he going to expect someone else in his life? Does he end up playing the wishing game throughout the rest of his life with different oh. figures? It's like the uh, thing of uh, a mum who makes her child's bed every morning. Is that helping or is that setting him up for never making his own bed? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. to, it, to go back to his mum, when, when his mum died and he gets the, uh, the train back, takes oh, her back yeah. to Indiana with his nan and every time the train stops at a station, James Dean, he gets out and he runs down to the carriage where his mum is in the coffin to check she's still there. That is heartbreaking, isn't oh, it? That is so heartbreaking. It's really, mm. really, it's so poignant. Yeah. And then he, he does her hair for the funeral. It's an open <gasps> casket. He does her hair and he snips off a bit of her, her hair Aww. to keep it for himself. Aww. You have to admire him because he was uh, given a tough road to hoe, and yet he had a lot of fantastic resources because of his talent. So he mm. had a, a way to express them uh, and a way to kind of channel his pain into his work and kind of keep re-examining those essential aches and pains. So we see that in East of Eden. And then his next film after that is Rebel Without a Cause. And of course, that's the one where he becomes the archetype of teenagers now and forever. And that's the famous scene towards the start of the film where he is shouting at both his mum and his dad. His dad's quite a pathetic character in the film. And they're both there and he's and they're, they're bickering. And he screams, you're tearing me apart. You're tearing me apart! What? You're tearing me you're apart! <laughs> yeah. Oh, and you're like crumpling his face in this sort of beautiful way and raking his fingers through his beautiful quiff and just like, just like, you just want to consume this creature who's so beautiful. Elvis Presley said in a 1956 interview with Parade magazine, I've made a study of Marlon Brando, and I made a study of poor Jimmy Dean, and I've made a study of myself, and I know why girls, at least the young'uns, go for us. We're sullen. We're brooding. We're something of a menace. I don't understand it exactly, but that's what the girls like in men. I don't know anything about Hollywood, but I know you can't be sexy if you smile. You can't be a rebel if you grin. That's such a good quote and such a good performance that quote, Thank Casey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so when this final act in his life, in his young life, comes around so soon, yeah. Jake, again, there feels like an inevitability about it because the obsession with speed has been there throughout his life. Every time he gets a bigger role, he gets a faster motorbike or a faster car. Mm -hmm. He seems to get through his car's in a matter of weeks or months. He buys one car, then he'll see a faster one in the garage and get that one. He's racing, but there are so many events that seem to foreshadow what will eventually come to pass. The main one being the speed awareness video. Oh, oh gosh. Which is incredible. He's he's clearly on the set of Giant. He's dressed up as a character from Giant. and uh, he's, got, he's all like cowboyed up. He's sat there, he's slapped, he's got his lasso in his hand. <laughs> now the catchphrase from the video was... Be careful on the roads out there. The life you save might be your own. Right, because it's a public service announcement. Yeah. So it's a whole series of these with different stars. That's it. And he turns it, and as he's leaving, he gets up, and he says he's got to get back to set. And he walks to the door, and he says, uh, the presenter says, anything else you want to say? And he said, be careful on the roads out there. The life you save might be mine. And he sort of smiles to himself, the presenter laughs, and he's off. 
shows a sense of humor right. that he's spun it and he's you know he's made it about himself but absolutely incredible that he's sort of foreshadowed this thing which is exactly what happens when he's on the he's on the road he's in his Porsche spider little bastard uh, it's the name of the car. So that was his nickname, was it? That was his nickname yeah. f- that he was given by the president of Warner Brothers, um, which James Dean then took on. Instead of using it as an insult, he took on and named his car Little Bastard. Oh, I like it. You were saying, Jake, that James uh, was quite adept at winning his races. So I guess this was something that he did to kind of like uh, run off some steam, like he'd go over to Palm Springs during a break in filming and yes, do, where a, he was... do a race. He was not allowed to race whilst filming. Okay. So he'd finished filming Giant. The only thing he had to do was go back and go over some of his lines where apparently he'd mumbled too much. Oh, because he was drunk. He he had to play a scene yeah. where he was drunk and he actually, method actor, he drank too much. And then, oh, guess what? We don't know what the it's hell you're saying. Inaudible. So he goes to race as soon as he can mm. uh, with his entourage. They were going to take the car, the Porsche Spider. They were going to take it uh, just on a trailer. But he decided to drive it there. And it, so he had the car. They were starting off from L.A., but the race was some like in Northern California or something. Yeah, the road. I think it's Route 466. But it also had a name. I can't recall the name, but it, it was quite a notorious road, I think. It comes out of this. So it's near Bakersfield, isn't it? And it mm. comes out of the hills. And there's all these warnings about how low the sun is at a certain time of day. Yeah. yeah. It comes behind you. And this Porsche Spider is such a low car, isn't it? It's it's all silver. It's yeah. all chrome. And it's like a jet fighter. It just it just disappears against the sun. Well, I can tell you from experience, I lived in California for many years. And when you are driving on those roads, those mm. desert roads, um, there's a shimmer because of the heat uh, and the, the sun hitting the asphalt. And also, there's just these really strange dips that play tricks on your eyes. So it's almost like a mm. mirage as you're driving. So uh, every now and again, there are warnings um, on on various roads that are notorious for being dangerous. And as though to add to the legend even more, <laughs> he dies in the car crash at 5.45. At 3.30 that afternoon, the last thing he ever signs is a speeding ticket. Oh, so he was pulled over for speeding? Yeah. The report suggested that he was doing 85 when it happened, the crash, but police reports officially confirmed they think it was only 55. So what was involved in this crash? So he was going the speed limit, so it wasn't like he was, like, bugging out. So, yeah, so he's going along. Uh, obviously, in America, so he's driving on the right-hand side. There's uh, a young uh, 23-year-old guy driving towards them who wants to turn left. She's going to have to cut across. Yeah. As we know, the car, hard to see. As you know from experience, yeah. cars themselves, hard to see anyway in certain light. And the guy turns in front of them. James Dean, as a racer, racers are trained that you can accelerate quicker than you can brake. So James Dean accelerated to try and go around him, the guy who hadn't seen him, and they ended up colliding head on. Oh. And the car's reported to have cartwheeled and hit the ground three times as it bounced along. Oh, no. A nurse, I think it was, that actually happened to be there to see it, ran over. Both arms broken, his leg crushed. He was in the cockpit and his body completely crushed. There was a slight pulse, but she knew that he'd, he'd died. And and he had he had somebody in the car with him who had survived, right? So the guy in the, in the car is his mechanic, isn't it? Rolf yes. Wouterich. Yes. Rolf Wuterich, he would suffer a lot, I think, from dealing with the crash, I assume, in that he stabbed and murdered his fourth wife. What? Yeah. Uh, he died in, I think, 81? In a di- car crash. He died in a car crash, In yeah. a car crash, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Mm. 
don't hang out with that guy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he can't now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and there's a, there's a curse with the car as well, isn't there? Not just with Ruterick. And then there is this idea of a, a curse that spins around James Dean as well, because Sal Minio, who he stars with in Rebel That a Cause, yep. dies in a stabbing at 37. Mm-hmm. Natalie Wood dies in a boating accident age 43. Yeah, and Pierre Angeli. The uh, love of his life. The love of his life. She dies at 39 from an accidental overdose. The car itself, so the car, the Porsche Spider 550, there's only, I think, 90 made of this model. He has the 55th one that's ever made. So the parts are so rare, that parts of the car are then taken to be used with other cars that, that are missing parts, whether it's the Porsche or even similar vehicles. Each one of those that gets a part ends up being an accident. The shell of the car itself, it's a bit of a gross story. Some guy buys it and he... George Barris. George Barris. George well Barris. Done. So he's a... George Barris is a famous uh, car fabricator. Yes. And he makes like the Batmobile and he makes all these famous showbiz cars that he, we love on stage and screen. And there's this sort of gross thing where it goes on tours of, of malls and cinemas and it's a little bit used for like speed awareness warnings. Yeah, yeah. But it's also a little bit of a, a, a cash cow that they've decided to sort of make some money off. That has issues of itself. So the parts of the car have been taken to fix other cars who have ended up in accidents. The shell itself is is on display somewhere and it falls down and injures somebody. Uh-huh. It's kept in a warehouse overnight and the warehouse catches fire. Oh. It then goes missing in 1960. Completely missing. People were slightly dubious of it because it was around the anniversary of James Dean's death. However, then 50 years after James Dean's death in 2005... They offer a million dollar reward for the shell of the car. But from when it went missing in 1960, it's still missing to this day. Ah, probably just as well. There's another <laughs> There's another spooky thing, though. Um, a week before James Dean died in this crash, he ran into Alec Guinness just after he'd purchased the car. Yes. Uh, they were at a, a, a restaurant in Hollywood and they pat each other outside. And um, Dean excitedly showed Alec the car. I just bought this thing. Um, so can you tell us what happened there with that? So Alec Guinness uh, was going out to show him the car. Apparently he reports that he was in a bad mood. He wasn't the successful actor we know now. He was hungry. He was tired. I think they couldn't even get a table at the restaurant. James Dean shows, excitedly shows him this car, which you also have to think about Alec Guinness at this point. He hasn't got any money. While this other young film star is showing him this brand new yeah. <laughs> rare car that is only 90 made. And he's showing him this new toy he's bought himself. Yeah. But Alec Guinness says, the car to me looks sinister. And he said to James Dean, don't get in that car. If you get in that car, you'll be found dead this time next week. And that was September the 23rd. James Dean died September the 30th. Oh. Quite, quite specific from Guinness there. Like, he hasn't just said, be careful, he might have a crash. Yeah. He's dated the accident. Do well, you, if he was a person of interest after this. Yeah. yeah. Do, do, do you think that this is a case of Alec Guinness retconning this scenario? Yeah, just thinking, let's... Another actor doing slightly better than I am at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So when he dies, and as you say, Jake, the injuries that James Dean sustains in the crash are mm. horrific. Mm. It's a closed coffin at his funeral, and then back at his house, it is like someone's just pressed paused on his life because they find 
not very much. It's quite an empty apartment. But mm. the things they do find are very indicative of the man he was. They find his bongos. Yep. They find his paints and his pastels. There's a checker set. There's a St. Christopher's medal. He's got a scrapbook of quotes and poems. He's got that lock of his mother's hair. And then he's got these three pages torn from a Mark Twain book called The Mysterious Stranger. And there's a sentence underlined, because there's so much poetry around Dean and so many spooky little things. And this is almost the final one for me. The sentence that he underlines from Mark Twain's book is, Life itself is only a vision, a dream. As if he knows, Katie, what is to come. I think he had a pretty good sense of himself his entire life. I mean, by identifying with the little prince. I mean, who knows if that's him willing himself into that role. But I think that he really had a handle on how evanescent life is. And uh, he kind of flirted flirted with death, it seems. Yeah. And there's the quote from him himself, which is, if a man can bridge the gap between life and death, if he can live after he's died, then maybe he was a great man. And I suppose in some ways he has lived on after his death in a way that he wouldn't have appreciated as a 24-year-old who had made three films because, Katie, we talk about the legacy of people we talk about and events hmm. we talk about on our podcast, but you don't need to with James Dean because, Jake, he is everywhere. Even today, he is inescapable. Yeah, I mean, he's somebody who, uh, he's in that pantheon of sexy dead people, uh, (laughs) along with uh, Marilyn Monroe and uh, good old Elvis. It's incredible to me, Jake, that he, just right out of the gate in his early 20s, bam, 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 three fantastic movies that stand the test of time. What else would he have accomplished, do you think, if he'd lived? Well, people close to him. They thought he'd gone on to direct. He would have a camera and he enjoyed playing and he would make these animations and he would enjoy taking photos of people. And he was known to say that he felt like directing was where the true creativity lied. That he didn't think he had full control when he was acting. Mm. I dread to think what a film would have looked like if everybody was acting like James Dean. (laughs) (laughs) That would be Eddie Spaghetti Hour. (laughs) We would have Ronald Reagan a heart attack to watch that. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I I think he would have he would have got on to to direct. But the classic thing in Hollywood: living in Hollywood can make you famous. Dying in Hollywood can make you a legend. Jake, it's been wonderful having you on the show today. Oh, thank it's you been so such much. a pleasure to be here. Thank honestly, thank you so much for having me. I've if you'd it. like more, Jake, uh, that podcast again is guest list. And Jake, you are out and about performing again. I am. Yes, I am on tour supporting. I'm with uh, Alan Carr and Jack D up until I think May next year. Oh, fantastic. So you can see me. Go on their website and you'll know where I am. Well, Tom, I don't think there's any doubt that Billy Joel could have written the song without including James Dean. An impossibility, Katie, I think. An impossibility. Madonna had the same issue with Vogue, didn't she, many years later. (laughs) Certain people she had to get in there. She got in Marilyn Monroe and Brando to match up with Billy. Oh, she's was she just copying Billy? Is that no, what it is? I think is? a little bit. A little yeah. bit of a plagiarist. Yeah, all those years later. Yeah, a little bit um, of a magpie. He is an amazing character, isn't he, James Dean? You could tell from the way the three of us were talking there that he just has this appeal all these years later. Oh, he's absolutely mesmerizing. You know, I was kind of tossing and turning last night after I treated myself to watching East of Eden again because he's so intense and it's disturbing. The interesting thing about James Dean is that sometimes when you go back to the original 
uh, you know, to the prototype of an archetype. Um, you think, oh, is that all there is? Because you're kind of so inured to what was so special about it in the context. So when you think about like all the people that he's influenced, whether it's Robert De Niro, Nicolas Cage, Johnny Depp, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, still, when you go back to the original James Dean, he is still head and shoulders above those guys in terms of his singular appeal. Um, I don't think he's ever going to be duplicated or bettered. Katie, I agree. If you have listened to today's podcast and you'd like even more James Dean, let me tell you about Death of a Film Star. This is a podcast where we take a deep dive into the life and the death of a different actor. James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, Rock Hudson, all covered in this series. It gives you the inside tales, the scandals and the truth about who they really were. Just search for Death of of a film star. And listeners, if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the socials at Spread That Fire on Insta and Twitter. And then also you can email us if you get some big idea, you want to talk to us about something, you have some vague commentary that you want to lay on us, or perhaps, much like our James Dean guest, Jake Lambert, you fancy yourself as a bit of an expert and you have something to lend to the situation. Well, please do get in touch and you can email us at fire at crowd network .co.uk. Now, Tom, what are we talking about on our next episode? Well, uh, Katie, Billy Joel has decided to rhyme James Dean with Brooklyn's got a winning team, which is about, Katie? Oh, no. Let me guess. Baseball. More baseball for you. Oh, I can't, I can't, I can't wait. <laughs> Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Steve Coe was larger than life. He was a drug smuggler, and he was in the best place to do it, Miami in the 1980s. Smuggling along the secret bayous and mangrove islands has been a craft handed down from generation to generation. But none of this tops his most outrageous story. On one particular drug run, Steve ended up with four colorful ceramic tiles that fit together like puzzle pieces. This piece of art was made by Pablo Picasso, who gave it to Ernest Hemingway. And then it was sent to Pablo Escobar. Or at least, that's what he told everyone. I don't think that your story is real. Forget about it. When I first heard this story, I thought it was probably bullshit. But the more I looked, the more I found. I'm Leah Carroll, and from something else, this is Hemingway's Picasso. Out now. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.